Tonight, what I want to do is I want to go into the Good Friday story in Matthew chapter 27, and I'm going to, I'm going to read the story, and then we're just going to, we're going to take a simple phrase out of this story and just kind of meditate on it. Last Sunday, we talked about the seven statements from the cross and how to live through a bad day, because if you want to know how to get through a bad day, look at Jesus on his worst day. Uh, you know, we call it Good Friday, but how many know it wasn't a Good Friday for him? It was a, it was a bad day for Jesus. And if there was any day Jesus ever wanted to quit, it would have been on that day. And if we look at how he got through that day, we can really learn some powerful lessons. And so I want to take one of the, uh, the statements, one of the phrases that we dealt with uh, last Sunday and really kind of meditate on it a little bit more tonight and expound on it a little bit more and, and really help you kind of understand the Good Friday event uh, a little bit more tonight than, than you have before. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 45, we handed out notes tonight, so I hope you all got a copy of that. Uh, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling out for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Then Jesus shouted again and he released his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared to many people. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. They said, this man truly was the son of God. Truly, he was the son of God. What I want to look at tonight is that, that one statement, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because there's four incredible truths uh, we get out of that, that, that one statement as we just kind of dissect that tonight and meditate on it. We're going to look at, at the cry. He cried out with a loud voice, the Bible says. We're going to look at the, the why. Why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? We're going to look at the my. He says, my God, my God. And then we want to look at the question as a whole, the, the Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, and just kind of look at that statement as a whole. Because when you study the cry, the cry points to the fact that he actually died. It, it points to, to just, it's just a fact that this actually happened. The, the why leads us to really understand the reason for why it happened. The my kind of explains to us the accomplishment of what actually happened. And then the question gets us, allows us to kind of peer into his motivation. Like, why did he go through? Why, why did he actually do this? And so this is what we want to look at tonight. Let's, let's start with the cry. Number one, the cry. Jesus cried out. Jesus cried out. And, and, and the, many Bible translators really fall short here. Uh, and, and I get why they did it, because nobody wants to paint a picture of their founder in their, the, the, the leader of their religion, the founder of this incredible movement called Christianity in such a despondent light, just, just crying out in despair. And so they really kind of held back, because this word cry, when you really study it out in the Greek, it is more of a shriek. It, it, it's, it's, it's a terrifying scream, is what this, this voice was. Because why else would Matthew and Mark include the Aramaic 
here in the gospel. I mean, he's writing to a Greek-speaking audience, and he, he gives us the phrase in Aramaic, and then he goes and translates it into the Greek for us. Why would he include it in the Aramaic if there wasn't something so vivid about the sound of the way Jesus cried out that the eyewitnesses, it was kind of seared and etched into the heart and the memory of the eyewitnesses that actually saw this happen. That was the way they authenticated the Bible. You see, the way, the way they authenticated, they didn't have bibliographies or footnotes like we have today. They would literally have to interview people that were there, and they would write eyewitness accounts. And that's how, they, that's how the Bible has become one of the most historically accurate documents uh, ever written and compiled. And any scholar will tell you that's true. And, and the amazing thing about this cry is even secular and skeptical and, and even atheist scholars will agree that this actually happened because no religion would ever paint their founder in this way. I mean, you look at the dying words of Buddha or the dying words of, of Muhammad and their heroic and their, their, their poetic words. It's, it's, it's like they're, they're leaving their final words. And here Jesus is, his, his final words crying out. In despair. Nobody would do that. And so the cry simply tells us that this actually happened. That Jesus Christ was alive and actually died on a cross. Even skeptics will agree with that because nobody would include this in the story. They'd want to paint him uh, to be a heroic leader, not dying in, in despair. So the cry lets us know this happens. And I hope you'll never forget that cry. I hope when you see those words in the Aramaic that you'll, you, you, you'll hear them from the eyewitness account. That there's a reason they put the Aramaic in here. It was, so, it was so vivid, the sound of that cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that just translating it into the Greek wasn't enough for Matthew and wasn't enough for Mark, but they actually had to write the way the eyewitness described it because it was so vivid. So let's look at the second part, the why. Number two is the why. Uh, first, thing you need to understand about this story is that Jesus is quoting scripture. This, this was a messianic prophecy written by King David years, years before this happened. See, many people think, well, Jesus is just, just, just crying in despair. And, 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 but what he's really doing is he's quoting scripture, which proves he was completely lucid during this. He knew exactly what was happening. He knew exactly what was going on. He wasn't despondent. He's quoting scripture. Because if you go back to Psalms chapter 22, when you study the book of Psalms, it always has those little footnotes that this happened after David's son died and this happened when he was being chased in the cave at Adullam. And and they've got these footnotes of when he wrote the different Psalms. Well, when you read Psalm 22, you have to ask the question, when did this ever happen to David? When did David ever go through this? Let's just, let's look at some excerpts of of Psalm chapter 22, the verse that Jesus is quoting. Verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. When did that ever happen to David? 
I, I, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. See, David isn't just describing an affliction here. He's describing an execution. This is a messianic prophecy. King David is is literally prophesying the death of Christ. And Jesus on the cross, he's quoting this passage of scripture, basically that that everyone around would would have recognized this. Those first century Jews, they would have known exactly what he was quoting, that this was Psalm 22. And Jesus was basically saying, David was pointing to me. This is me. What what David wrote about, this is me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm here giving my life for you. He's pointing them to himself. I I mean, look back at verse 45 of Matthew 27. It says, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the whole land. Well, when you study the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament prophets, you understand what darkness means. Darkness is is judgment. You go back to Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, and it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning. Remember, this is right in the middle of the Passover feast. And all your songs in a lamentation, I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son. I'll make it like the morning for an only son, the only son, Jesus Christ. See, darkness means judgment. And it says there was darkness over the whole earth. Well, what does that tell us? It means we're, we were the guilty. It was us that was guilty. Darkness fell over mankind. It was mankind that was guilty. All human beings deserve death. They are guilty and they deserve punishment. And and we have a hard time hearing that in our culture, in our generation. We struggle with dealing with the fact that we're guilty, that we deserve death, that our sin, the wages of our sin, and again, sin is just a Bible word that that means you missed the mark. Either you did too much of, of stuff you shouldn't have been doing or you didn't do enough of stuff you should be doing. The wages of sin is death. We are guilty and we deserve punishment and modern people resist this. I mean, we have a philosophy in the world today that says, don't let anybody make you feel guilty. You decide for your life what is right and what is wrong. And don't let anybody ever try to make you feel guilty. You know, after World War II, there was, there was kind of a, an age of guilt, a culture of guilt in America. And there was a lot of psychology that delved into this, this guilty feeling that people have. Well, if you look at culture today, we don't struggle with guilt anymore. I mean, we do everything in the open. We're completely now unashamed of our sin, unashamed of our lifestyles. We, we, We do everything out in the open. Our culture has no more guilt and no more shame. And it's an amazing, you know, when you study the sociological 
components of this. It's amazing what it's doing to our culture. Andrew Del Banco, one of the, uh, uh, you know, he's a, he's a secular anthropologist and he, he kind of studies culture. And he, he, was, he was working on a book where he was kind of studying modern culture. And in the book, he's, he's telling a story from, from an old kind of Percy, uh, Walker Percy novel. And in the story, there was a psychologist dealing with a patient, and the patient had just committed an affair on his wife, and the psychologist, Max, believed the state of enlightenment is when you got to a place where you didn't feel guilty anymore. That's, that's, that's an enlightened state where you don't feel guilty for your actions. And he's dealing with this patient, and he's confused because the guy doesn't feel guilty for what he did, and it worries him. And the psychologist is asking, well, why don't you feel guilty? Uh, you shouldn't feel guilt. Nobody should make you feel guilt. It, it, you know, it's your choice. And he goes, the reason I'm worried is because I don't feel guilt. I don't have guilt about it. See, when you have no guilt, it also means you have no hope. Because with no guilt, it means you're not living for anything more than yourself. And all, all living with no guilt means is that you're living with no hope. There's no hope. There's no hope. I have nothing to live for beyond myself. And so the why of this, uh, of this statement, why God, why have you abandoned me? Because there was a punishment that had to be paid. I told this story during our Christmas series about a, a judge in Texas who had a buddy get caught speeding and he was going down the freeway, got caught speeding and called his friend, the judge, and he said, hey, can you do your judge thing and take care of the ticket? And the judge said, sure, I'll take care of the ticket for you. Well, a couple months later, he runs into the judge and he says, man, I want to thank you for, for getting that ticket dismissed. And the judge says, I didn't get your ticket dismissed. He said, well, what, what do you mean you didn't get dismissed? I asked you to take care of it. Uh, he goes, yeah, I, I took care of it. Well, what do you mean? He goes, I paid for it. And the guy said, well, I, I didn't want you to pay for my ticket. I just wanted you to do, do, do your judge thing and just kind of get it dismissed. And the judge asked him, Will you, were you guilty? Were you guilty? Because if you were a guilty, if I'm a righteous judge, a price has to be paid. There's a punishment that must be had. And the why, God, why have you abandoned me was that punishment had to happen. There was a price. See, I think many people today have this attitude, this idea that God just kind of dismisses the charges against you. God doesn't dismiss the charges against you. God punished the charges against you. He just didn't punish you. There was a price that had to be paid. And that's what Good Friday is all about. Jesus paid the price. He paid the price. God didn't take your sin and dismiss it. God is so holy. God cannot overlook your sin. Your sin has to be punished. But at the very same time, God is so loving. He could not punish you for your sin, but he made a way out. And instead of punishing you, he punished his son, Jesus, on the cross. The why points to the reason Jesus died. He died because sin had to be punished. Our sin. He was perfect. Our sin had to be punished. Let's look at number three, the my. My God. My God. The my shows us two things in this passage. The my shows us Jesus' perfect obedience. That Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father. 
And it also shows us his infinite suffering. Like this is suffering beyond all human imagination. Let's look at the suffering first. I want you to notice what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying, my hands, my hands. He's not saying, my feet, my feet, my head, my head. Remember, they put nails through his wrists, severing his median nerves, the the shearing pain throbbing throughout his body. They put nails in his feet. They hung him at a, at a, with, with his knees at a 45-degree ankle, holding the weight of his body on the muscles of his thighs and calves, going into absolute spasms and cramps. He's not crying out about the physical pain of his body. What is he crying for? He's saying, my God, my God. See, he's not complaining about the physical pain. The physical suffering. See, all throughout this process, I mean, Jesus is rather collected. He's, he, he's poised all through the crucifixion process. I mean, I mean, they beat him. They torture him. He falls to the ground. He gets back up. He keeps taking it. But look at what he's crying. My God, my God. You see, there's no greater agony in life than to lose love. To lose deep love. A love that, that really, really matters to you. Anybody in this room that's ever been divorced, that's ever been abandoned by a parent, you know the feeling. Now take that feeling and you multiply it by a trillion and that's what Jesus is feeling here. I mean, the father and the son's relationship, the love that they had for each other would take the greatest marriage in the history of of the human race and make it look like a drop compared to the ocean. And he lost that. He lost the greatest love. And that was the agony. It wasn't the physical pain. It was that his father that, that he'd been in relationship with, his entire existence has now turned his back on him, has disowned him. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And he's crying out about that lost love, that that suffering that he's going through. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 says, they will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the love of God and from his glorious power. Forever separated from the Lord and his glorious power. See, that's what Jesus experienced there. He experienced separation so that those of us here today that have, that have said yes to him will never have to experience separation. See, it's the power of adoption. See, when you adopt a child, I, I found out from, from one of the ladies in our church who was adopted that, that you know, her, her sisters used to give her a hard time about being adopted. And, and dad, why do you treat her the way you treat everyone else? She's, she's just adopted. And her father sat her down one day and says, listen, I can disown you, but I can't disown her. I adopted her. I chose her. I, I legally can't disown her. I can disown you, my biological children, but I can't disown my adopted child. See, the beauty of that right there, think about it. Only one child was ever disowned by God, and that was his biological son, Jesus. Why? So that you and I that have been adopted will never be disowned, will never be forsaken, will never be abandoned, will never be rejected by God. Jesus was disowned. Jesus infinitely suffered so that you and I never never would have to. 
Now let's look at his obedience, because not only does this, this my God, my God show the suffering of Christ, but it also shows his obedience, because the word my is a very intimate term. You may not know who I am at all, and you may not know my wife or know my son, but if you hear me use phrases like my Amanda or, or my Asher, you'll know immediately those people are very important to me. Like I, like I wouldn't use the word my over somebody that wasn't intimate with me. I use that phrase over, over, over people I'm, I'm close to. Jesus is saying, my God, he lost my, he's not saying, God, God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, my God. My God, you're my father, my dad. Why have you turned your back on me? Let me help you understand this. Let me give you a a quick theology lesson. Jesus is using covenant language here. See, in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter six, God said, "I I will make you my people and I will be your God. And when you're part of God's family, God gives you the right to say, my God, my God. You, You now belong to him and he belongs to you. And here Jesus is. And we're in a situation today as believers that when we cry, my God, my God, God will never abandon us. He'll he'll never turn his back on us. He'll never reject us. But here the opposite is true for Jesus. See, Jesus obeyed perfectly. He gave himself to the Father's will. Did everything his dad asked and was abandoned by his father, disowned by his father, but he still obeyed perfectly. And you see it in his language. You see him even in death saying, you are my God, and even if you abandon me, I'm not gonna abandon you. I'm not gonna let go of you. And even if life doesn't go the way I want it to go and things aren't turning out the way I want them to turn out, I'm gonna hold on to you because you are my God. He obeyed perfectly. Jesus descends to hell on our behalf. And from the heart of hell, he cries out to his father, I still love you. You are still my God. That's perfect obedience perfect obedience that that Jesus displays in the the simple word, my God, my God. See, the beauty of the cross, the beauty of of, of Good Friday is two substitutions occurred. And you hear me talk about this all the time, and I'm going to continue to talk about this all the time because many Christians today still don't get it. Many people today are, are barely understanding the first substitution And yet two substitutions happen on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 illustrates it for us. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's the first substitution. Jesus Christ was substituted in our place. He was completely innocent. We were guilty. We had sin. And yet Jesus became sin for us. He knew no sin, yet he was substituted in our place. God treated Jesus on Good Friday the way you and I deserve to be treated. But don't stop there. Don't stop there. That provides forgiveness of sins, but that's only half of what he accomplished for you. And it's a shame that that's where most Christians stop today. Most Christians receive the forgiveness that comes from the cross, but they never receive the next step. Because it goes on to say here in 2 Corinthians 5 that we might 
become the righteousness of God in him. See, he was treated like a sinner for you so that you could be treated righteous for him. That's the second substitution. You are righteous in Christ. Not only are you forgiven, but you're righteous. Not only are your sins paid for, but you are a child of God, loved, righteous, holy, perfect in the sight of the Father. And yet Christians today still struggle with, with, am I good enough? Does God accept me? Does God like me? Why do we struggle with that? Because we don't understand what he did on the cross. See, if you're still wondering whether or not God likes you, if you're still struggling with, with, am I good enough? Am I doing enough? It's because you don't understand the cross. You don't understand what Good Friday is all about. He was treated like a sinner so that you could be treated like you're righteous, even when you're not. Because God treats you as you're righteous, not because you do a lot of good things, not because you're perfect, not because you're without sin. He treats you like it because Jesus earned it. This is the best way I can illustrate this. Uh, imagine being in prison for life. Being in, you're, you're locked away for life. And all of a sudden you receive a presidential pardon. You're free to go. Can you imagine the feeling? I mean, here you are facing life behind bars. Here you are sitting in a, in a small cell. That's your only hope for the rest of your life until you die. And then all of a sudden you receive a presidential pardon. You're free to go. You're free to live your life again. That's only half of what Jesus Christ accomplished. And again, that's the only half most of us receive is that, is that we've been pardoned, we've been forgiven. But what's the second half? Now imagine the president comes to you and not only have you received a pardon, but now the president bestows upon you the Medal of Honor. If you study the Medal of Honor, it's an incredible award. If you're in the military, if you're active duty and you wear a Medal of Honor, you never have to submit to another inspection. You'll never be, you'll never be in a position to be condemned if you wear a Medal of Honor. You, you are exempt from all, all inspections from here on out because you can never be condemned when you have a Medal of Honor. When you have a Medal of Honor, everybody salutes you. Everybody honors you. Everybody respects you because of this medal you wear around your neck. Well, you need to understand when Jesus Christ died, he earned the Medal of Honor. He obeyed perfectly. He paid the price. His father gave him the Medal of Honor and now gives you the Medal of the Honor. So not only have you been pardoned, not only are you free to grow, now you have the Medal of Honor around your neck. And the whole world salutes you because you are now righteous. You are now holy. You're perfect. And that's the second half of what Christ accomplished on the cross. What a shame would it be to go through a Good Friday and not understand the fullness of what he did. That two substitutions happened. God treated Jesus the way you deserve to be treated so that God can now treat you the way Jesus deserves to be treated. That you can walk with your head held high. You can come to the presence of God. You can, you can pray and have the faith and the boldness that God will answer your prayer. Why? Because you've got the Medal of Honor. Not because you're a good person. Not because you worked for it. Not because you did everything right. Because Jesus did it all. And he was treated like a sinner that you might be treated like you're righteous. It's the beauty of Christianity. That's why we call it good news. That's why Christianity is radically different than a religion. 
That's why the Romans called us atheists for the first 200 years. We were known as an anti-religion because that verse right there. You mean we can be treated righteous apart from our works, apart from our effort, apart from our performance, simply because Jesus earned it and gave it to us? Yes, that's good news. And that's what Good Friday is all about. So the my, the my shows us what he accomplished. My God, my God shows us that that we can leave here tonight wearing the medal of honor, wearing righteousness around our neck that Jesus Christ earned. And then lastly, let's look at the question as a whole. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And let's, let's just ask a simple question tonight. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? Why did he allow his father to abandon him and forsake him? And and the easy answer, and and it's a right answer, but I think it falls short, is he did everything for the glory of God. He he did it to bring glory to his father. And that, that would be correct. But if you think about it, he was already bringing glory to his father in heaven. I mean, if, if it was just about bringing glory to God, he could have stayed in heaven and brought glory to his father. So why did he come and do it? What, what did he get from doing it that he didn't already have? Simply put, it was us. It was us. That's what he got. He got us. He did it so that we could be rescued. He did it so that we could be saved. He went through all of this agony voluntarily simply because his dad loved you so much that he said to his dad, Dad, I'll go. I'll do whatever it takes to bring him home. Whatever that means, I'll do. If if I can bring him home for you, Dad, if I can go rescue my brothers and sisters, and if I can bring him home, Dad, I'll go. And whatever that means, that means I'll do it because I love you, Father. And I know how much you love them. And I'll die. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Is that God tonight doesn't want to be your religion. He just wants to be your dad. And he loves you so much that he paid every price to bring you home. He paid every price to be able to bring you home. Because he loves you. Would you close your eyes with me just for a moment? In just a few moments, we're going to receive communion together. But before we receive communion, I just want to invite, if there's anybody here tonight that's visiting us and simply put, you're not right with God. If you died tonight, you honestly, you don't know the condition of your soul. You don't know where your soul's at. You heard a very beautiful message tonight that God wants to bring you home. God wants to pay the price, but you need to know God's not going to impose this on you. God's not going to force this on you. Why would Jesus die the death that he died if there is any other way to the Father except through him? How could it be love for God to allow his son to be tortured and killed the way Jesus Christ died if there is another way? If you could get it, if you could circumvent that, how could it be love? 
there's one way, and I know we live in a world today that likes to say all roads lead to God. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about it. But the truth is only one road leads to God, and that's Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you tonight, if you need to make a decision tonight to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, to just say, you know what? I'm ready to give you my life. I'm ready to give up control and, and give it to you and, and just surrender with every eye closed and nobody looking around. I just want to invite you to say a simple prayer with me tonight. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or come to the front. And you don't even need to pray this out loud. You can pray it in your heart. God will hear your heart tonight. But if you're with us tonight, and you're, you'd say, you know what? I mean, there, there's no greater night than on Good Friday. Can you imagine the story you'll get to tell to your grandchildren? It was Good Friday that, that I gave my heart to Jesus Christ, that I, that I truly surrendered my life to him. So with every eye closed, nobody looking around, if you just want to say a simple prayer with me tonight, would you just raise your hand and say, I'd like to join you in that prayer tonight. Just raise your hand right now. Thank you, 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 thank you. Put your hands down. The prayer is very, very simple. The first part of the prayer is is just an act of surrender. You say, God, I surrender my life to you. I don't even fully know what that means but I'm willing to take a step of faith and do it. So I, I, I surrender my life completely to you tonight. Just, just in your own words, surrender to him. Second part of the prayer is forgiveness. Jesus Christ was already punished for your sin. He does not need to be punished again. All you must do now is simply ask him to forgive you and he will absolutely say yes. He didn't go through all of that pain to not forgive you. He went through all of that pain so that he could forgive you tonight if you would simply ask. So would you just say, forgive me for all of my sin. And then the last part of the prayer is, I just want you to say thank you. Now that you understand a little bit more what he went through on your behalf, would you just kind of, in your heart, just express your gratitude towards him? Bible tells us the angels just opened up the Lamb's book of life. They took a pen and in blood they signed your name. And there'll be a day that you stand before God and you're not going to experience the second death because your name will be found written in the Lamb's book of life. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Well, I'm going to invite the worship team to lead us in a song as our ushers begin to hand out the communion elements. You can stand with us tonight to receive communion. Uh, You don't need to be a member of our church to receive communion with us. The only prerequisite to receiving communion is that you've surrendered your life to Christ. So those of you that prayed with us tonight for the first time, I want to invite you to receive communion with us. So when they pass it out, just hold on to the elements and then we'll receive it together in a minute.
night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He gave it to the disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. Well, one of the things at our church that we're always want to make sure everyone understands is the body and the blood were, were given for different reasons. Communion is a two-act ceremony. Act one is the body. Act two is the, the blood. Well, what was the body given for? Life. Life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. Isaiah says, by, his, by, by, the, by, by the beaten body of Christ, we are made whole. By, by the whip marks on his back, we are healed. So the body's given for life. So as we receive the bread, he, he always says, do this to remember me. Because we don't want this to become just a, a ceremonial, uh, kind of a religious thing thing that we go through, but we want this to be a life-giving ceremony that just breathes light, that brings us back to our first love. Communion is a reenactment of Good Friday. That's what communion is. It's the fulfillment of the Passover of the Old Testament. It's a reenactment of what Christ did. And when Christ fulfilled Passover, he fulfilled it to the smallest detail. They put him in the tomb at three o'clock in the afternoon. When Jewish families would have been putting the lamb in the oven. They nailed him to the cross at 9 a.m. When Jewish families would have been at home preparing the Passover lamb. They they literally slit the throat of the lamb at 9 a.m. in the morning. They nailed him to the cross at 9 a.m. When I say Jesus fulfilled the Passover, he fulfilled it. To the smallest detail. He fulfilled it. Communion is just a reenactment of what he went through on Good Friday, of what he paid for, what he purchased. The Bible says he carried all of our sin and all of our sickness on the cross. The body deals with the sickness. The blood deals with the sin. So as we take the body, I want you to just, by faith, receive the life that he wants to give you. The blood is all about receiving the forgiveness he wants to give you. The body is all about receiving the life, the, the, the bread that we eat tonight, symbolic of his body. Father, in the name of Jesus, as we take this bread tonight, symbolic of your son's body, (laughs) we just believe in faith for the life that you want to give us. John 10.10, you've come to give us life and life more abundantly, and so we receive that tonight, the life that you want to give us. In the name of Jesus, let's take the bread together. I'm going to have our chairman of elders right now come, Ed White, he's going to lead us in the cup tonight. Thank you, Aaron. This is such a special night for a Christian, I'll tell you. I mean, salvation is is free. It's free. And if you just accepted Jesus tonight, it's free. Your sins are wiped clean by this this blood. But it wasn't cheap. What Jesus did on that cross was not cheap. And so this is one of the most special nights that we get to remember what he did for us and the suffering on that cross. So just close your eyes for a second. Dear God, we just thank you for sending your son. We thank you for loving us so much that you would send your son to die for us, God, to suffer on that cross right there so that his blood could cleanse our sins, God. We just thank you for that, and we just pray that we'll always remember this, that this will not just be an act. This will be a true remembrance from our heart for what you did for us. Let's take the the blood right now. Let's remember what Jesus did on that cross for us right now. He wiped our sins clean.